Welcome to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum Podcast, where we speak to members and ask them to share some property industry insights and at the same time, get to know our industry colleagues a little better. My guest today is Paul McManus, Project Manager of Cub Unity. Paul has been involved in various facets of the property industry since he finished school. After acquiring his first property at 19 and then completing his first property development at 21, Paul has worked as a property manager, mortgage broker, and a real estate principal founding three businesses. After undertaking a couple of developments as a hobby, Paul found his true calling in property development becoming a member of the UDIA in 2018. Joining his passions of housing affordability and sustainability, Paul formed Cobb Unity and was awarded the Institute's Award for Excellence for Affordable Housing in 2021. And amidst all of this, Paul somehow found time to attain a pilot's licence. Thanks for joining us on the Development Drum today, Paul. Thanks for having me. Now, is it safe to fly with you or not? Can you please confirm or deny? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. (laughs) We're always learning as pilots, so I've got um, many more hours to do before I think any of my family or friends are going to come up with me, but I'm quite happy just to do solo flights by myself at the so, moment. So. so contact you in about a decade. And, yeah, and it about might that, be maybe okay. five years, two five years. years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at a decade perhaps. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> now, Paul, your company, Cub Unity, is very much focused on delivering affordable stock to market, specifically tailored to allow first-time buyers to get into the marketplace, an incredibly important part of the market and something that we spend a lot of time focusing on at the UDIA. Uh, can you talk us through why this is so important to you? Yeah, I think um, I, I sort of had the opportunity. Obviously, I, I own a real estate business with a rent roll and I've had the opportunity over the years, probably about 10, oh, it would have been about 12 years ago, you know, it was hard for people to get into the property market and I heard their stories. So, I listened to them and I didn't ask them why don't you own a house? I said, tell me a story. Tell me a story from when you were born. And their story is quite different to mine. Some people that I heard their stories was about, um, they had to leave school early to take care of their brothers and sisters because a parent passed away. Or So I've had the opportunity to go to school, get a full education. I lived at home. I've always had a roof over my head. I've always had food on the table. And that was something that you know, is privilege. Although, you know, our family was just the run of the mill suburban family. That privilege of mine, I wanted to use to help other people who weren't as fortunate as what I was growing up. So back in 2011, I sort of branched into almost creating secondary dwellings in every house that I built and got in a bit of trouble with that with council, but still push forward because I needed to fight for these people that needed affordable housing. And that's how sort of Cub Unity was formed. As I said to council, well, if you're not allowing us to build like a secondary little dwelling for other people to live in, like we need to build it in scale. And we got to a point where they agreed that we could move forward with Cub Unity. And watching how much that changes people's lives, like that stepping stone approach is we know this is not the home for them for the long term. Yes, yep. This is just an opportunity for them to get their foot in the door, get out of mum and dad's house or get out of the rental market and own an asset that they can then utilize later on in life. You know, when they find a partner, they'll have the double income. They can then easily afford that eight hundred to a million dollar house with the double income and the equity that they've built up over time in their their new home. So I guess for me it was a bit of a 
passion after I've heard their story and going, well, why don't I use my privilege to help those out that need a bit of a leg up? Because at the end of the day, I got a leg up. I, I got to live with my parents until I was 22 and, and I didn't have to pay rent and I always had food on the table. So uh, people in this country aren't as fortunate as me. So it was just a way of sort of giving back and doing something I love at the same time, which is building units and houses. It's an incredibly tough place to play in the market though, isn't it, Paul? I mean, the, hmm. the margins are tight. There's not a lot of levers that you can use when you're trying to deliver product to market at a really affordable price, is there? Yeah, no, it's it's tough. And it's not just the the margins itself. It's about convincing major banks mm. to get on board. You know, we do a lot of one and two bedroom products and specifically very heavy on the one bedroom yes. product market. Yes. The response from most banks was one bedrooms never work. They never sell. We didn't have any comparable sales in the area. Believe it or not, there is for 30, 40 years, there was no one bedroom products built in the Redlands. So for the valuer to come out and try and give us a commercial valuation for the bank was, we had to use our own sales as our own comparative Mm -hmm. market sales for the valuation. So we had to go out and prove the market and then go to the bank and say, hey, you know, will you give us the money? And fortunately... You know, I think it was about six or seven banks later, we, yes. we got, a, got it across the line uh, and now it's proven. So yes. that now helps other people in the industry see this. The valuer has no issue at the moment doing any valuations in the area because we've got lots of comparative sales and the banks are quite comfortable with it. They know this product exists. They know there's a big market for it and the resale is is very quick as well. So it's very low risk for the bank. And that will allow other people in the industry to do similar projects, hopefully moving forward. And Paul, I know that you've just returned from overseas, but what has been getting a, a fairly significant amount of media and and not before mm-hmm. time, we would say, is obviously the, the unfolding housing affordability and rental crisis that we're facing in Queensland. And it's been highly visible uh, to us at the UDIA for a couple of years coming out of that strong stimulus basis of that Home Builder provided to the industry. This product is difficult to deliver, as you say, difficult to get lending. What needs to change in terms of the system to be able to get more of this stock on the ground? Because quite clearly, there is huge demand for it. Massive demand. I have never seen the market in such dire straits. So we, we still run our rent roll. And what I'm seeing in the rental market at the moment is it's catastrophic. It is terrible. You know, we have very limited stock and when something comes up, it is just, you know, you've got 10 applications within the first 24 hours. There's a lot of upward pressure on pricing. It's starting to price people out of the market. The announcement that come out, I think, yesterday around secondary dwellings is brilliant. Yes. I think that's our quickest, sharpest way of getting stock on the ground as quick as we can. I encourage that there is a lot of homes in Australia at the moment that can accommodate a secondary dwelling and it's um, either within it or next to it. Yes. Uh, and they're beautiful homes. People just need a little bit of privacy, their little space and something to to help get them on their feet. I think the quicker we can get them delivered to market, the better. It also helps people. Like if, if you're a first home buyer that can't quite afford that $800,000 property. But if that $800,000 property happened to have a secondary dwelling on it, 
Now you might have a little bit of a supplementary income to assist with paying the mortgage. Yes. So I do encourage, again, that's going to be tough for the banks to realise that income stream when it's a principal place. But I, I really encourage the major lenders in Australia to jump on board. Mm. It is a recognisable income now. Yeah. And that's something that a first home buyer could use to get that home. And then as their family grows, you know, or mum and dad gets a little bit older, it's an opportunity for the family to live there. Yes. So I think that's a great outcome. And I see that helping a lot in you know, the housing shortage that we've got at the moment. So those secondary dwellings, Paul, are not just a place for naughty husbands to, <laughs> to be dispatched to? I hope not. Okay. <laughs> it's just, just for my own personal knowledge and information. Thank you. I'm not sure. I'm not a naughty husband. <laughs> I'm not married yet, so. <laughs> Room Ro- and I'm time just for that. <laughs> it was interesting watching the community response to that announcement. Like you, I think it's a, it's it's almost a, a no-brainer, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it's a great way to get some short term quick supply into yep. the market uh, and just makes complete sense. So uh, I agree with you, a fantastic announcement. It's interesting watching the community reaction. There were some people who obviously had a secondary dwelling on their premise were saying fantastic, but there were some concerns from the community as well to be expected around the type of impact that that announcement would have and that type of dwelling might have on things like traffic, design, noise, all of those things. You've been at the front line of delivering this type of housing in communities. How's the community reacted on the ground to that? I love this conversation around cars and traffic because one of the things that we did is when I first started developing, I would just go and develop. After being a member of the UDIA, I was actually given the tools through the community engagement process, the handbook, and I went along to the seminars about it. And one morning I woke up and I said, we're going to do this on Cub Unity. We're going to go knock on doors. And I was too scared to do it by myself. So I said to one of the young ladies in the office, Jamie Lee, I said, can you come with me? And we went on a Saturday morning and we started knocking on doors. And I tried to act confident, but I was, I was, pretty scared. And we went out. You're not we, alone, Paul. We uh, hear that a lot I know, from, from our members. Daunting. It is very like, daunting. Yeah. <laughs> but within about five door knocks, we just introduced ourselves. I'm Paul. This is Jamie Lee. We're your new neighbours over here. And they had questions and we just spoke and we spoke about the dogs and the cats and anything else that we could. And after about five, I really started to enjoy it. I'm yes. like, this is fun. Yeah. We started to get the neighbours would invite this us in for a coffee yeah. or a chat or a water. And we did. We, we sat down with them as like human beings one-on-one. And um, that allowed us an avenue of communication. So from there, we could start to deliver information, but we could also listen to their feedback. And the number one thing every single neighbor come to us with was Traffic yes. and car parking, yep, yep, yep. which is interesting because they're counterproductive. They said, first and foremost, you're going to build more units. That means more traffic and more cars on the road. And I struggled to get down to the shops because there's so much traffic. The second thing is they say, you need to have more car parks there, which is generating the traffic. So I think- Which is counterintuitive to housing affordability. so yep. counterintuitive. I think affordable housing, one of the best things that we can do for affordable housing in Queensland is investing in good connectivity with public transport. If you get your public transport, some car shares, everyone's already got Ubers and taxis and the likes, some electric scooters, a combination of good ways of people to connect to the places or 
or being very close to their work and shops, eliminate that car because what we're going to do is we're going to minimize that car parking space. If I mm. got rid of my car, my car parks take up the best yes. real estate on yes. my sites. Yep. My ground floor units with the yards that everyone wants, I've got to empty out half of my site to park cars. And each car parking space is costing my first home buyers at least thirty to $40,000. It's just the price that it costs, you know, by the time you do the construction, the land. That's so much better in their pocket. Yeah. And for $40,000, if we had, you know, a few electric cars at the front that they could just bump on an app and away they go or an electric scooter if they just need to pop down the shops or a bus that pulls up right out the front, people will use it. Yes. I, I travel the world a lot. As soon as I get home, I jump straight to my car. Yes. Yeah. But I can travel the world for 12 months and never, ever, ever need to set foot in a car. You know, you just get used to getting around, getting around. if you don't have yeah. it. Yeah. So when it's convenient, you'll use it, you know, if it's a little bit inconvenient and then public transport's more convenient, you'll tend to just use that. So. And perhaps the Olympics provides us with that opportunity to completely rethink how we move around the region. 100%. I'm really excited for the Olympics for that very reason is we need to invest heavy in that infrastructure. That will assist a lot with the housing affordability, minimizing those car parks. And car parks, like, let's be honest, we might not even be driving a car in 5, 10, 15 mm. years' time. So we don't need that car park. We'll, we'll press a button on our phone, a car will show up, and away they go. I was just in San Francisco last week, and these Waymo cars are just bouncing Incredible. around town and yep. and driving themselves. So the technology's there. It's coming. And I think... That's going to be beautiful because we've got a lot of land at the moment that's locked up mm -hmm. to park cars and 90% of the time it's not used. You know, you go to Bunnings and it only gets used during the day and then yeah. it's, you know, like we could be building some good quality housing on those car parks. Absolutely. And I would love to go to Bunnings less as yeah. well. So if that was constrained, that would be excellent. <laughs> now, Paul, your background before development was in real estate and an, as a mortgage broker. Was it a steep learning curve then moving <laughs> into the development space? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think the background in mortgage broking was good because, you know, I started off in duplexes and, and subdivisions and knowing how to convince the bank to give you money is a very important thing. Yes. I knew exactly what they wanted, what they were looking for, and I made sure I delivered on those fundamentals. So that was good. When I went from duplexes to 34 units, big I, jump. I'm still learning yeah. on that project. Huge jump, yeah. absolutely massive jump. And um, I couldn't have done it without the support of, you know, my mentor, the UDIA, all the contacts that I got through the UDIA. I reckon 80, 90% of my consultants are all people I met from networking functions Fantastic. in the UDIA. Yeah. And you just confirmed that you're not being paid for that comment. 100%. Yeah. Excellent. Good man. <laughs> And through that steep learning curve, the big jump, you've obviously seen some market cycles even in that short space of time. Yeah. What's been your your biggest or your most difficult challenge that you've had to overcome? Oh, I've probably got at least two. I'd say the obvious one was COVID. You know, like yeah. Yeah. here I am jumping from, you know, duplexes and subdivisions up to this big one. I call it the big one because it's a big one for me. Yeah. And then all the ducks were lined up. We had the sales, we had funders, we had all of our approvals in place. And I'm, you could almost 
see it finished, hadn't started yet. And then bang, COVID come along and just absolutely destroyed the best project that was just perfectly lined up. And I was like, how did this happen? Mm. But, you know, the team looked at me and they said, you know, is this dead? And I said, no, because I've just put way too much. Yes, yes. You know, everything I had was, you know, I sold the car, sold the boat, sold everything like we're going for it. So the team looked at me, I looked at them, I said, oh, no, it's happening. Just sell more. So by selling more of our stock, we just continued to de-risk it. It was the only thing we could do. We couldn't build. We didn't have the money. But I knew that if we sold and kept selling, eventually someone was going to give us the money to build it. And then from there, you know, the builder was ready to go. They were desperate for the work. Yes. And then Home Builder come along and it changed overnight. So we got fortunate there. Well, fortunate that we have good industry bodies sort of advocating for that because that saved that project 100%. Without that home builder, those sales wouldn't have turned around quick. Yeah, we're in an interesting place in terms of that discussion too because I I hear a lot of discussion about, well, now in retrospect, was home builder really necessary? You know, we've seen such such an importance placed around property and, and people wanting to move and changes to household composition. Would the property industry have been fine anyway? And my message back to those people has been, I'm interested in your views, is we shouldn't forget that HomeBuilder provided a huge opportunity and leg up for people to get into the property industry. I've heard so many examples of people living in Townsville or Southeast Corner or Mackay, wherever it be, and, and that gave them the opportunity to be able to put together that deposit yep. and buy their first house. And I think that sometimes gets lost. Yep. Oh, no, without a doubt, like, you know, I'd like to say, oh, we would have been fine, but we would have struggled yeah. a lot. The benefit that it's given our buyers is huge. You yes. know, we're, we're 18 yes. to 25-year-old people that are just getting in the market you know, they're buying $236,000, $245,000 properties and end up with, you know, $40,000 towards Incredible. Those. Massive. Yeah. Plus their own savings. Plus, fortunately for them, their value's gone up, you know, yes. 50 to 100 grand as well. So they're very wealthy young individuals now and no one can take that away from no. them. And, and that's their stepping stone now to, to move forward in life. It's been huge for them. And they're the people that are going to be paying this off in their lifetime with taxes as well. Yeah. So they yes. deserve it. They've earned it. Definitely. We needed that mm-hmm. at the time. And I think it was the best thing that happened mm-hmm. to the industry to get it moving because it was it was dropping off a cliff. Yeah. And if someone didn't do something, I think we'd be having a different conversation about why didn't they do something. Yes, so yeah. Precisely. It was yeah. needed. And there is a human face to it. Yep. Um, who do you look up to in the industry and why? Oh, there's a lot. I love what the Bluebird team are doing. Yeah. Claire Rier, they're actually part of um, Cub Unity and a big reason why we were successful at the end of the day. I love their approach to business, the way that they do things differently, but do things with passion and love and care, Yeah. but get in there and get the job done. And they're extremely hard workers. I think one of the first events that I went along to, uh, I think it was Brooke Monaghan that was getting awards and I sort of looked at him and I looked at myself. He's kind of, he's pretty young and he's doing some really amazing things. So that was someone I originally looked up to uh, in the industry and they do fantastic. Incredible stuff. Incredible. So that's another person. And in my local area in the Redlands, which is about 25 or 20 minutes outside of Brisbane, we have probably one of the most respected builder developers, Fatini. Yes. 
and Vaughn and the group, the direction they're taking that business with their community engagement mm. is impressive. Yeah. And ev- like I sit on a lot of boards out in the Redlands, Vaughn is at everyone. Yes. Every time he's constantly showing up and he's very engaged with the community. And that's what the Redlands needs yes. is people like that, bringing the community on board for the journey. That's half the secret too, isn't it? Just oh, showing yeah. up as you did, doing knocking yeah. on those doors, <laughs> having cups of coffee. Yep. Putting yeah, a human face to what it is our industry does. Yeah, you, you have to be human because people earlier on when I would do a duplex, you'd be on the brunt end of some of the neighbours and it was very unhuman the mm. way that they would treat and talk to me. I was like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. But it's just they haven't had the opportunity to meet me before that or yeah. have that open dialogue. They would just let something build up, developer, let's go yell at him out the front at 6 mm. o'clock in the morning. Mm. So. Now, you know, if, if there's a bit of noise or a bit of dust, one of the lady, old ladies next door to Cub Unity, there's dust. So every Saturday, me and Jamie Lee would go around and we would hose off her car and, and wash it. And I think she just appreciated us being around there because yeah. then we'd have to go change some light bulbs inside and yes. do a few other <laughs> little bits and pieces. Have a chat, have yeah. morning tea. <laughs> but that would have been quite different if we didn't. You hadn't built that relationship. Yeah. Or yeah. if we just sent someone out there yeah. to do a job. I think- it was about being connected with her and that made a big difference. You know, you're there for, you know, 12 months making a lot of noise and a lot of dust and it's changing. But now that it's done, it's done. And and all those neighbours are very happy. We invited them around for a Christmas party with all the new residents and they all get along really well and yeah, love fantastic. it. Love what's happened there. So and I think that it's that the difference between being really proactive and on the front foot as opposed to yeah. having that first level of contact when there is a little bit of dust or noise, you know, having formed that relationship early on. And, and genuinely listening to them. Yes. Like, you know, we changed our DA and our plans based on feedback from the community. Incredible. Not just going out there and just pretending, like genuinely going, okay, that's a reasonable, you know, I think the first day that we finished our community engagement, I looked at Jamie Lee and I said, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to have to change this design because they're not going to like, you know, how our car parking was laid out and how all the access was coming off a, a certain street. So, we went back and we changed the whole thing. It took us about two, three months mm-hmm. and resubmitted it. And um, that was a very positive response that we got from the neighbours for doing that. We didn't have to. Yes. But you can't go and do community engagement and then not listen to it has someone. has to be genuine. And they were genuine reasons too. Yeah. You talked before about joining the UDIA. Yeah. How's that helped you grow your skills and business? It's helped a lot. And I was actually flicking through my emails the other day. I think I reached out to the UDIA in 2014 and didn't join until 2018. Is that right? I know. Well, I'll have, have to charge you interest now. What Paul. was I yeah. thinking? <laughs> so I think it come about when I was younger and I was doing these developments and people wanted to come to me and learn. And I, I think I actually went to the US and there was this guy that was selling like a, a year membership. And you would come along and network with people and he would do, he would run courses and it was all about property investment, property development. I was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder if there's anything in Australia that's sort of similar. And then I I think that's where I come across the UDIA because I Googled like a property development course. Yes. Because I was doing this as a hobby. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. 
It's a hell of a hobby. It's it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> when you sit there and you go. I, I remember my first duplex. Do I build a four bedroom? Do I build a? Th- yeah. I don't know. It's, it's I yeah. Just build a three it's bedroom. Right. See how it goes. <laughs> so I found this course with the UDIA, and then obviously life got a bit busy somewhere. And then I travel the world for a year, and I come back, and I've gone. You know what? I need to be a professional. Like I'm a professional real estate agent. I'm a professional mortgage broker. I need to be a professional developer. I love it. So I bit the bullet, joined up. I said to myself, I'm just going to give this a shot for a year. I'm going to sign up to every single event, even if it's irrelevant to me. I'm just going to sign up and show up and show up and show up. It was pretty daunting. Like I didn't know anyone. I was was a bit younger and, you know, it was a little bit awkward. But then as I was moving forward, jumped into the mentoring program. Yes, that's right. That helped me so much. Like, because I was starting the planning of Cub Unity then. So John, my mentor, was fantastic. You know, he'd take the whole day and sit down with me and go, this is what, this is your next step. And then I'd go away and do that and come back. So I had a real life project that we worked on. Yes. And then at the same time, a little hack was, I knew I needed consultants. So if I saw a consultant that was like sponsoring an event at the UDIA or was there, I'd reach out to them and introduce myself. Hey, I'm Paul. I actually need a body court manager. And then you would get chatting with them and you would generally meet them off site afterwards. But that was just another familiar face that yes. I could yes, yes. recognize. Bu- building your network. Building the network. Yeah. So yeah, that, without the UDIA, that like I wouldn't have got that project off the ground. Like I needed the networks, I needed the support, I needed the intellectual property that the members yes. just freely give you yes. when you're sitting there chatting over a beer or a coffee. It was a game changer for me from a, a you know, a rookie to a semi-professional. I'm still learning, still going, but um, yeah, massive change in my professional career. Yeah. You had an incredible run of winning lucky door prizes, if I remember <laughs> too, for one point in time. So that was the other benefit of attending all those events. Yeah, like it was what was it, three in a row? Yeah, one time. I, think, I, just, I think we nearly considered taking your name out of it. I a think hat. you actually did. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. I've never seen anyone go on a on a streak that, Same. that way. That was, was yeah. Exciting. I thought by the fourth time, I said, look, if I'm going to win it the fourth time, I'm going to hand it back. and Unless it's X, Y, and Z. What's next for you? Well, I think um, the traditional development style, there's too much waste uh, of materials and money. Um, So, you know, generally what I will do is I'll buy a site, I'll plan it out go through the long council process, and then we come back and then hook into tendering it out mm. for construction. Uh, construction at the moment is very expensive. Yep. There's a lot of- Volatile, sh- isn't it? It is very volatile. So I think from an affordability, like my core principles is always sustainability yes. and affordability. They're the two things that get me up in the morning. So my biggest opportunity to make a big impact in housing affordability and sustainability is to- dive really deep in the construction side. So construction at the moment is making up about 66 to 70 odd percent of my total development costs. So if I can minimize that by 10, 20, Mm. 30, 40 percent, I can then deliver product to market much cheaper. And I can also do that by controlling my waste. Like There's a lot of waste on building sites and perfectly good materials that end up in landfill because we're just not 
quite getting it right. Construction mm. sites are messy, they're dirty. So my future is going to be diving deeper, maybe using a bit of tech, looking at different building materials that are maybe more sustainable and really focusing on how can we build that home quicker at a more affordable rate with less wastage and also looking at the long-term benefits of the user. Mm. How can we get them using less energy in that property over its lifespan? And then even going, well, that property is not going to last forever. Like every single house that, you know, I'm about to do another demolition next week, how can I use that or build that house in a way that we can recycle it? Yes. You know, can we upcycle it, uh, you know, reuse components of it or recycle components of it? So looking at the full life cycle of that build, I think is the key and that's what I'm going to be focused on the next several years. Is anyone doing it well internationally? Where do you look for some great examples of who's really leading in that space? I think, oh, I've travelled the world a lot and I haven't seen a lot come out yet. You know, you see the 3D printing in China, you see the modular building in China. They're doing some cool things, but again, not quite to the Australian standard, which is the trick. You know, we've got a very high quality of housing uh, standards in Australia, which is great. Don't let that go. But, you know, when you bring a new building material or something to Australia, it's kind of tough to get things ticked off. Yep. Whereas, you know, China, they can just build it and go, yes, that's a house. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's it's a little bit different uh, over there, but they're doing some cool things, very modular type builds. Mm. I th- think that's part of the success is trying Absolutely. to build something in a controlled environment where you can keep your workers safe, keep them out of the sun, keep them out of the weather yep. and control that timeline. We've seen it this year with weather delays yes, blowing out projects. Absolutely. So if we can control the majority of that build somehow in a controlled environment and then get that out to site quickly and then it can cut down. Like we could be building these things while we're waiting for council to give it the, the green tick mm. and then just transport it to site and it's yep. done. So looking at that technology, uh, you know, technology as simple as like doing a takeoff of exactly how many tiles we need. Yes. Uh, we, we've got the tech to do that. Yeah. Uh, we should be doing it yeah. instead of letting the tiler rock up on the day and do cuts here, there and everywhere, yeah. like optimising the, the materials that we're using in a certain building. As you say, with close to sort of 70% of the, the cost coming yeah. from materials and construction, it's it's well worth yep. a look to see how some of those processes and yeah. materials can be optimised. And it's probably more than that now. That, mm. that, that was yes. the last project. Yeah. Now, lastly, mm-hmm. thinking back to your 20-year-old self, <laughs> what piece of professional advice would you give a young Paul McManus? I'm glad you asked the professional advice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go into the other stuff, Paul. We don't have time for that. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> I'd say professional advice would be, there's going to be two. I'd say first and foremost is network. Yeah. Surround yourself with people you want to be more like. I was always nervous in my 20s. You know, at mortgage broking, we'd do the networking events. It was very daunting. Yes. But just do it. Yes. Get out there, throw yourself out there in the deep end. It took me until I was 30 till I did that. I should have done it much sooner because that would have helped me a lot. Mm. And the other thing, which would have, if I did that networking, it would have solved my other, not regret, but learning curve was I built a duplex 
I then rented it out, pulled my equity out and did it again and again and again. Then got kind of excited and bought heaps of development sites. Do one thing at a time. So yeah, that's probably my two biggest tips is surround yourself with people you want to be more like and network. And then that would have led on to learning things quicker. It's that evolution too from a hobby into a career, isn't it? Yeah, big. But it's good because if you know, like if, I think that's why I'm quite passionate about property is it was a hobby. And it's something I enjoy. It has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like I think from when I was five years old, every time I blew out the candles on my cake, you know how you could never tell someone what you wish for? Yes. I always wish for like a pallet of bricks and a pile of sand and cement so I could build houses. I never told anyone that until I was 21 when I built my first house. So it's always been- Yeah. I was far more sophisticated than mine, Paul, which was to get a guinea pig. So (laughs) (laughs) dream big. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Paul, it has been absolutely wonderful not only to chat to you today but also to watch your career journey. You are a wonderful UDIA member because you do get in and get involved and uh, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the development drum and also having you as part of our industry. So thank you, No, I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Remember to rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. While you're there, please make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss an episode.